Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, fellow time travelers. Always great to have you with me. Here we are again together as we continue our journey through history. Uh, as always, before the episode, I've got to say thanks to all the people who show their support for all of the podcasts that Paul and I do together uh, by subscribing to my patreon.com site. Uh, it's the financial support that comes in from there that makes all the free stuff that we do possible, the love letters uh, specifically. Uh, so to all those who are supporting the effort via Patreon, huge thank you uh, if you're not a member yet and you'd like to join and support the work uh, go to patreon.com search for me by name become a member part with some cash monthly or, or annually it's cheaper if you go for the whole year at once you get access to vodcasts every week a question and answer session that Paul and I have become very fond of and it'd be great to have you as part of the family okay it's now time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world Recorder, microphone, action. The church presented itself as top dog, as the daddy. Deadly violence erupts as the mob frees a famous charioteer. State retribution is swift, brutal and extreme. Thousands of innocents are killed. Appalled by the atrocity, the church excommunicates the man who ordered it, the Roman Emperor. The battle of wills between church and state is born. A tug of war over the mastery of the people that is one of the greatest themes in the history of the world. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Hi, Neil. In the last episode, it was 306 AD, and we watched a mighty Roman army proclaim their man, Constantine, emperor. Where are we this week? Hi, Paul. Well, this week we're in Milan. Uh, It's the best part of a century later, uh, and at this point in time... Milan is a place to be, Uh, it's where the power is, it's home to both the Roman Emperor, the King of Kings and to the most famous and celebrated churchman in Christendom. We're right outside the city's spectacular cathedral as Bishop Ambrose goes head to head with Emperor Theodosius.
Well, we're in Milan, basically. Uh, we're also briefly in Thessalonica, which is Roman Greece, if you like. You know, that that place that, that was Greece, but under... Uh, under Roman rule at the time we're talking about and a principal city there called Thessalonica actually one of the richest populous ports and cities in the empire significant place but actually we, we start off in, in Milan it's Christmas day uh, 390 AD and no lesser figure than the Roman emperor Theodosius also known as Theodosius the Great uh, is hanging about <laughs> outside the cathedral in Milan, trying to get in. And he's not allowed in. He's the Roman emperor. You know, he's not, he's not the, he shares rule with, with, with another, but he's the Roman emperor, and uh, he's hanging about outside the locked doors, they're locked against him, uh, of the cathedral in Milan. And he's not dressed in his imperial... Raymond, he's in the garb of a of a penitent, because the fact is, at this moment, he's excommunicated. He has been excommunicated for months at this point, uh, so he's he's excluded since the spring of the year three ninety. He has been excluded from the church, uh, and he, he's excommunicated. Which means, if that state is to continue for him, that means he, he doesn't get to heaven. He's out. He's in. He's in perdition. He's in hell. Uh, unless he can rectify the situation, uh, so it, it, it's pretty grim. He has he has turned up various times with his little entourage, uh, knocking on the door, trying to get in, and the the person who's turning him away all the time is Bishop Ambrose, Bishop Ambrose of Milan. So it's it's cr- Christmas Day three ninety, and finally on on this Christmas Day, after months of of suffering, if you like, uh, the doors creak open. And uh, Emperor Theodosius is invited back into the the loving arms of the Mother Church, and so, you know, by the end of the the, the rituals and ceremonies that that take place that day, he's he's excommunicated no longer. He's back in, back in with the with the good guys. Um, this is a significant moment, if ever there was one, in the story of the world, because for the first time. A Christian churchman has won submission from a king. In fact, a king of kings, an emperor, the Roman emperor. The Roman emperor has gone on his knees in front of this bishop to to beg, to beg for forgiveness. And by sheer force of will, this bishop, Ambrose of Milan, has demonstrated for all to see, because it's a big theatrical number, it's a big song and dance that his office held from God weighs more than that of any earthly king, even an emperor. You know, because, because he's got his power from God, that's the trump card. And th- th- but this is the this is the first time that this play act is is performed, and the the people are shown that this is the case. And uh, you know, after all, Theodosius. At the very least, he must have been playing along with it. Either he was, either it was honest and genuine, and he was he was operating as a penitent Christian man, excommunicated and desperate to resolve the situation, or or he may have been playing a part in a performance that was designed to 
influence the people. But there's no doubting, though, that it shows or showed how far Christianity had come. It's 390 AD, just a hundred years before, Christians had been thrown to the lions in the Colosseum and in hippodromes, uh, you know, up and down the, you know, the, the empire. They were meat for the for the animals, and now a bishop has demonstrated his seniority over the emperor. It's quite a thing, you know. In just a hundred years, this is the this is the position that Christianity has has reached. And in this moment, this this tussle between Theodosius and uh, Ambrose of Milan, uh, it it begins one of the great themes of the story of the world, or or, or at the very least, uh, the story of the Western European world, which is to say the endless, I mean from this moment on there's an endless tug of war begins between church and state to demonstrate who has the upper hand in the control of the people, body and soul and again and again it comes down to the the personalities involved, you know it depends who is the earthly ruler and who is the churchman question, but it's a it's a story that plays out again and again and again from this time on. It's worth knowing, I suppose, that Ambrose was Roman to the core. He was the son of a, a Praetorian prefect, which is to say a, a senior, a, a very high-ranking Roman official. And by the time of his dust-up with Theodosius, he's arguably the most celebrated churchman, church figure, church father in the whole of Christendom. Uh, it has to do with the stance that he has taken on various issues, the things that he has said, the books that he has written, uh, you know, just his personality. He, he has established himself as one of the shining lights, one of the figures to whom everyone pays attention. For one thing, he was a staunch opponent of the, the principal heresy of the time, which was Arianism. Arianism after Arius or Arius, who was a churchman in Alexandria. Um, it, it, it's so, as with all the heresies, it's the stuff of um, anal retentive nitpicking a lot of the time. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it comes down to the most finicky details from time to time. But in the case of the Arian heresy, it, it was actually something quite profound. Theodosius comes after Constantine the Great, that we've already had the adventure with. Uh, Constantine, the, the Roman Emperor, who was hailed in York and then spent 20 years establishing his position. And he it was who had summoned the council at Nicaea, which you know brought together all the, all the significant churchmen of the time, all the Christian churchmen of the time, to thrash out exactly what Christianity was. Out of that council came the Nicene Creed. And the, the, the Nicene Creed, one of the central points was that the Trinity... God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit were, as far as the Nicene Creed was concerned, were all of one substance, and they had all been there forever. They had all, all three of them had always existed. That was the decision of the Nicene Creed. The Arian heresy held that, that Jesus, the Son, was born from God and that therefore he hadn't been there at the beginning of time. He, he had come along later. Uh, they, it revered 
Jesus, the Son, but it held that God the Father was there at the beginning on his own, and, and from him had come Jesus, the Son. And that flew in the face of the Nicene Creed that said no. You know, you get it in um, John's Gospel. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is Jesus, the Logos, reason. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That idea that, although we don't see him until he appears in the Holy Land, Jesus has always been there. We just don't get to see him until until he makes that appearance. So, even though he's his son, they, because you'd imagine anyone's son would come later than them. Well, yes, it's all part of the mystery, Paul. It's all part of the mystery of, of, the, of the church, of, of Christianity. But the idea is that although he didn't, although we didn't receive him, he didn't incarnate, he didn't become flesh until he appears as, you know, Jesus of Nazareth. Nonetheless, he was always there. He had, he, he, he's the same stuff as God and he's there with God at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. Okay, it's just, it was a, it was a, it's that way of establishing the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, as being all there forever, all there together, and all there from the, from the beginning, from before the beginning. They're just always there. So these, these were, it was, this was in the nature of you know, the early, early centuries of the church. It was one heresy after another that was being put down. So anyway, Ambrose had been a very staunch very staunch opponent of Arianism and a very strong supporter of the Nicene Creed. He also, he's an interesting man, uh, he, he insisted, he was like an early socialist, he insisted that the poor be treated as equals, uh, that the, the poor were not to be mistreated or looked down upon. And it all came from a teaching which I don't think was, it wasn't Ambrose's idea, but he was a strong proponent of the idea that, that in the beginning, God had intended the resources of the world, everything, would be shared equally. You know, rather than there being, you know, say, at no point was it God's plan that there would be a handful of elite and everybody else scrabbling about in the dust for scraps. That was never the plan. And that, that had only happened because of the connivance and the, and the wickedness of men. The, the, the idea in the beginning was that everyone was equal. I mean, for example, there's a line that goes, when Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? You know, the idea being that when God created Adam and Eve, it, he, wasn't, he wasn't planning that there would be an, an elite with a, with a subservient uh, population beneath them. So Ambrose preached that it was Christian duty, obligation to, to, to share wealth with the poor. And, and to acknowledge that they were poor because wealth had been unfairly denied them. It's quite, it was quite revolutionary stuff, but it, it was all part of what, um, uh, you know, had, had drawn a lot of attention to him and, and had established them as this most forthright and most prominent, most famous, celebrated churchman of the time. Theodosius was equally devout. He was also an opponent of that Arian heresy, a strong defender of the Nicene Creed that had you know, that, had, that he'd inherited from, from Constantine. And in truth, it was Theodosius, really, effectively, more than Constantine, who actually saw to it that Christianity became the religion of the Roman Empire. You know, that, you know Constantine kind of lit the blue touch paper, but it was really Theodosius' efforts that established 
Christianity as the religion of the Roman Empire. Theodosius had his court in Milan. That was it. that was where he was. That's where he was based, and that was where Ambrose was. And the, uh, Ambrose had been Theodosius's advisor. Was Theodosius's advisor on church matters? Okay. Now, what <laughs> what happens that causes all the trouble? That ends up with uh, Theodosius being excommunicated and locked out of the cathedral. Is a massacre in Thessalonica, this city in Roman Greece. It was garrisoned in in the year in question. It was garrisoned uh, by Goths. When I say garrisoned, you might imagine it being like the the local police force. Big city, big population, and the and it was Roman soldiers, employees, conscripts of Rome, who were there to maintain Roman authority over the place. And by three ninety, it was Goths. The Goths were a a barbarian tribe, a barbarian people, or, or they had been. As recently as 378 AD, at the Battle of Adrianople, a Goth army had defeated, had fought and defeated a Roman army. So, so as recently as 378, Roman soldiers and Goths had been at each other's throats. But in the intervening period, and this wasn't something that was exclusive to Goths, but Goths were amongst those who had been welcomed into imperial territory as Foiderati. And Foiderati were outsiders, barbarian people, who were welcomed in on the basis of having signed peace treaties. It was very much the case that the Romans reached a point with so many barbarian peoples out beyond the borders, out beyond the boundaries, who wanted in, it was becoming impossible. And so, as a compromise, they were bringing them in so that these people were inside the tent pissing out rather than outside the tent pissing in. So they were welcomed in and they were given territory and, you know, and they were given position. I suppose because the Roman Empire lasted so Mm. long, it's hard to get your head around those timescales. And so, you know, whole groups of people coming in over centuries isn't such an odd concept really yeah i mean it's it 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 happened it it wasn't the case at the beginning but it it became more and more a a necessary compromise as the centuries went on and yes um it was just too exhausting to keep everybody out that had once upon a time been deemed as undesirable it just wasn't practical and in any way as the empire kept growing you need more of everything you need more fighting men uh you need more you need more gold, you need more farmland, you need more crops, you need, you need more. And, and so it, it became uh, just an answer to many problems to gradually bring these people in and make use of them. You know, have them fighting for you against others rather than constantly fighting against all of them. But the point was, it, although because the, certainly in a place like Thessalonica, the Roman citizens, a lot of them, still regarded Goths as the enemy. They were suspicious of them, frightened of them, uh, you know, ill-disposed towards them, and they certainly didn't like being told what to do by them. You know, the, you know, they're the enemy. They had been the enemy, and now here they were, bold as brass, you know, marching about the streets, you know, telling people what to do and imposing discipline and authority. It, and if, and if, in actual fact, what sparks the massacre is chariot racing believe it or believe it not, um, like every other 
big Roman city. There was a hippodrome. Hippo is horse, not hippopotamus. Well, hippopotamus means the horse of the river, actually. But hippodrome, it's the place for, for chariot racing with chariots pulled by horses. And in Thessalonica, as any, it was a big deal. You know, it's like the football of the day. Everyone had a had a team. Everyone was fanatical about uh, chariot racing. And in Thessalonica, a, a, a chariot racing hero had been accused of the rape of a slave boy. And word of that crime had got to the Goth garrison commander, a man called Bothric, who arrested the charioteer and threw him in jail. And the Thessalonians went bonkers. It was like they'd thrown, I don't know, Messi or Beckham or something in jail. They wanted him out. They wanted him, they wanted him in the hippodrome where he could win the money because there's a lot of money changed hands in these things. So they, a, a, a mob gathered outside the headquarters of the Goth garrison demanding the release of their man. And Bothrick said, no, you're not having him. He's going to be, he's going to be tried for, for what, he's, well, what he's been charged with. Uh, and the mob took the law into their own hands and they killed Bothrick and they killed every last man of the garrison. Right, big big deal. This is a big deal, and they and they, and they got their, they got their charioteer back, and set him free. Well, word of this, as you can imagine, got back to uh, Theodosius back in Milan, and in a rage, he, apparently amongst other things, he was he could be quite quick tempered. He was a bit he was a bit tasty in a corner, and he sent word that the next contingent of Roman soldiers was to get into Thessalonica and punish them, punish the population. Almost immediately, it was like as soon as he dropped the letter in the in the letterbox, you know, or you know, dispatched the messenger to start the the, the word getting to Thessalonica. He regretted it, and allegedly he sent word saying, "Don't." But it was too late. The the one message got there, and everything else that was about to happen happened. And the Roman soldiers in question, they waited until everyone was in the in the hippodrome, and then they could shut the, they shut the gates, and they set about them with swords and the rest. And between the slaughter and the stampede that was caused, well, it was estimated that perhaps 7,000 people were killed. Wow. 7,000 Thessalonians. There's a later historian called Theodoret of Cyrus, and he wrote how Theodosius had, and I quote, gratified his desire for vengeance by unsheathing the sword most unjustly and tyrannically against all, slaying the innocent and guilty, like ears of wheat in the time of harvest, they were alike cut down. So, it's bad. Bad optics, as they say. And Theodosius' court was in Milan, Ambrose's cathedral and base of operations was in Milan, and when Ambrose heard about the massacre, he excommunicated Theodosius, after all, Theodosius, as far as he was concerned, was just another parishioner. He was just another member of his congregation. And he excommunicated him. So, at this point, you get into the realms of exactly what happened. Subsequent historians have suggested that perhaps the massacre wasn't anything like on the scale as described by Theodore of Cyrus. Something happened, but it might not have been. Maybe, maybe, maybe knock a zero off the end of the death toll. I don't know. You know how these things get can get exaggerated. Nobody knows. And also, there may have been a complex interplay of church and state politics going on that inspired Theodosius in some kind of Machiavellian way to play along with the show. You know, maybe as part of bigging up the the role of of the church. 
it's difficult to know. Or, or he may simply have been outmaneuvered by his bishop, who, who timed it right and was able to get the upper hand. It's difficult to know. But in, in any event, in that moment between them, one way or another, Theodosius and Ambrose demonstrated that the church, the Christian church, had grounds for claiming that it held sway over mere earthly rulers. And that was a big deal. For the first time in Western Europe, the Western Europe of the Roman Empire, for the first time, not for the last time, the church presented itself as top dog, as the daddy. consequences of that moment would ripple across history for millennia to come. I guess the church in the UK and America and wherever isn't as powerful as it used to be, but it still has a big impact on politics, doesn't it? Yeah, it's always interesting, isn't it, the way every American president whatever their private feelings on the matter are, they always present themselves as um, subject to God. They all do. God bless America. You know, every every American president has, has invoked God, the Christian God, because it's just too politically dangerous for any of them to step forward and deny God and, and present themselves as, as anything but God-fearing. It is quite extraordinary, but that that is still tightly bound around uh, American politics, without a shadow of a doubt. I I also I just I love the the synchronicity of the fact that Ambrose and his his attitude to the poor. I mean, he was you know he was from he was from wealth and and status himself anyway. You know, we're not we're not dealing with a a, a boy from the streets here, but politically or or, or from the heart, he was warning that it was unacceptable to have an elite with all the money and the poor with an equal share of nothing. That's what we're fighting about now. You know, 1,700 years later, we're, we're fighting about the same, or some of us are fighting about the same thing, about you know the, the greatest redistribution of wealth at the moment. That's what people are upset about, that the, the Bezoses and the... Soros and Gates and all the rest of them have all the money and more and more people are sharing less and less you know and it's interesting that Ambrose of Milan was making that point in 390 AD the same stuff the same stuff over and over again A vast glittering empire Ruling for over a thousand years, a brave and loyal general who fights ferociously for his Roman masters is turned against them. A mighty Goth army battles its way into Rome and sacks the city. Civilization, citizen confidence and the empire are rocked. The vast, all-powerful Roman project is teetering on the abyss. Next time in my love letter to the world... To help support this podcast and get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. 
My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it, get them listening, and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. 